So, uh, <laughs> this started out with, hey, Mike, we should do a, po-. you know, we haven't recorded together in a long time. Why don't we just get together? Okay. Who else do you want to have on? Well, how about Alan? So I invited you, you guys. So, so there were five of us, and then Scott had to work, mm-hmm. and now Bill called me up today, and uh, we just have your two books. <laughs> so. Hopeless Paul. Shocking. I am shocked. Back to the bin. We, we lost our power uh, for about six hours, like a week or two back. We had a bad storm come through here. I have not seen a lightning storm like that in years. And uh, it, it's amazing how fast I go from, all right, when is the power coming back on to? The power is never coming back on. This is our... <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what I kind of did last night because uh, the power went out. I, I mean, it was it was, for all I know, it was the same storm that it worked its way up here. Because the the lightning, thunder and lightning was really bad. I was down in the basement watching TV, and it sounded like someone set off a bomb in my backyard. Mm-hmm. I swear. And then everything just shut down. And then I got a uh, an email on my phone from uh, the power company saying, uh, "We anticipate being able to turn your power back on at 1:15 p.m. tomorrow." So I thought, well, that sucks because it's around 100 degrees over here, and uh, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a lousy night. Yeah, that's that, that to me. Oh my God, Val Kilmer is going to be Blunt Man in the Jay and Silent Bob reboot. I can't believe Jay and yeah. Silent Bob are rebooting. Well, it's a it's a play on. Uh, Hollywood is doing a grim and gritty reboot of of uh, Blunt Man and Chronic, and they're going to go try to stop it. So it's basically the same plot as Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, but. Everyone's older, and Jay apparently has a kid. So, oh. I remember enjoying by Kevin Smith's daughter. I might add, <laughs> I did enjoy uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back back in the day, but I only think I saw it once, and that was it. But I did enjoy it. <laughs> so, we should record an episode, huh? Yes, <laughs> we could just see. A- all night and then eventually we'll run out of gas and it's going to be like all right we did nothing so get off my lawn cast I, I could i can usually cull a get off my lawn cast out of most of the conversations <laughs> that we have but you usually they're better left on the cutting room floor Come on, it's a bunch of old fanboys sitting there bitching about what they don't like about these kids today and their hula hoops and their dan fogelberg records so yeah pretty much so, <clears throat> hello everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and this week I am joined by Mr. Michael Bailey. Hello! And Professor Alan Middleton. Hello! I want to say, you know, that you're guesting this week, but I always feel with Mike, well, you were a former co-host on the show, and, you know... It's it's almost like like a like a brotherhood. Once a co-host, always a co-host. You know, <laughs> so I, I kind of you know. And Alan, you 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 were the first intern. It's kind of like a family reunion. Yeah. <laughs> so and, and, 
Homecoming weekend. Of Alan being an intern recently, listening to an old uh, Quarterbin podcast with you two talking about the Pegasus Project. Ah. Uh, yes, I, I, I miss the days where I could just order Alan around and pretend that he would listen to me. <laughs> I miss the days when I pretended to listen to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Realizing every time you were out of the room, he was muttering something incomprehensible under his breath. So. <laughs> now you, uh, one of these days, Spataro, one of these days. Are, uh, are either of you very much into Harry Potter? I have never read a book. Uh, a sing- oh, no, I've read a book. I've never read any of the Harry Potter books, nor have we, we watched any of the films. <laughs> okay, so you are definitely not. Michael. Uh, I've read all the books, and I think I've seen uh, the first four or five movies. Okay, who's what? There's uh, in in the last two books. There's the uh, the elf that's kind of on board with the uh, the dark magic. He, he lives in. Uh, in in the house, he he sits there grumbling every time Harry gives him an order. <laughs> you you know who I'm talking about? I can't. I, I'm drawing a blank in my, my in my mind, and I shouldn't be. But uh, creature is his name, and that's kind of what I picture when I you know when we talk about me giving you an order. Or or could it could just be Mutley? Anyway. So, uh, just reliving all good times when uh, we could have you shine Bill's shoes and the like. Because <laughs> God knows Bill wasn't going to shine them himself. So, <laughs> pretty much. So, no, uh, Bill. It's tough. It's tough getting that diet diet Mountain Dew to the exact right temperature. He likes it just over body temperature. Or low 100s is what he's shooting for. Low well, 100s. He, he, to be fair, he lives in Florida, where it's like 150 degrees year that round. That is true. So, is true. you know, it's 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 really easy to, to get it to, uh, as as Paul would say, piss warm. I believe is his exact. Uh, Actually, I think that's the scientific uh, terminology. <laughs> I mean, there was that one time Bill wanted uh, wanted me to get alligator jerky. I assumed he meant purchase it. No, he said he actually wanted me to make it. And I, th- I thought that was over the top. I'm sorry. I just now have this image of, of Alan and an alligator, like, circling each other <laughs> with, with, with the Amok Time music playing. <laughs> so now, you know, we, we recently were down in Florida two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, while we were there, we, you know, we had a geek get-together. And one of the things that came up, and perhaps you as a uh, Southerner, as a transplanted Eastern, uh, you know, Northeasterner who is now a Southerner, uh, might, might be able to shed some light on is, we were talking about the fact that I saw, you know, the alligator signs, mm-hmm. and I found it disturbing. And Shag's response to me was, I've been living in Florida for 20 years, and in 20 years I've only seen two alligators. And I said... I find that even more disturbing because that means if I'm going to go that long without seeing one, I'm going to start to let my guard down and I'm going to stop paying attention, which means the next time I see one, it's going to be because it's clamped onto my ankle. (laughs) Paul has flushed more than that down the toilet in New York City. We all know that. The, the whole the whole concept of alligators, you know, walking around and it's is is very disturbing to me. Well, you know, 
I, I think it just goes to the fact that if you don't live near nature, and I and I and I don't mean like there's a tree nearby. I'm talking like you know there's there's actual wildlife. Uh, one of the things that I kind of like about the house that we're currently living in, uh, and we're going to not get when we we go to the other one, is we have uh, there's about two acres on the back of the house, and there's woods behind there. So we have a healthy deer population coming through the yard all the time, and they're great when they're far away or when they're on the other side of the yard. It's not so great when it's two o'clock in the morning, you and your wife have gotten home and one runs right past your wife near the front door. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could see where that would be troublesome. Do they, do they, I mean, do they just run by or do they ever get aggressive? Uh, they never, they want to stay away from you. Uh, that's what we found last year. It was actually kind of cool because we had, uh, two deer, two mother deer, and, and they had three fawns with them. And it would be interesting to watch because they would come to sun in our, or sit in the shade in our yard while one of the, the mothers would go off. And uh, first, I'm like, you know, it's really nice to see a progressive family in the deer community. But also, <laughs> uh, it, it was kind of neat just on a, like a wildlife level. Like, you know, I just wanted, you know, Richard Attenborough to be narrating as I'm watching this. And... Uh, so they tend to stay away from you because they don't want anything to do with you. You know, it's just, it's, it's, they so they're like aggressive. Snobs. Yeah, exactly. Deers, <laughs> deers are giant snobs. It's not like we're constantly hitting them with cars. So, but I mean, I told you, Mike, if you leave the mint juleps out, you're just going to attract them. <laughs> and don't we hit them with cars because they deserve it? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes. Are they asking for it? Dressing in those outfits? <laughs> <laughs> they asking for it crossing the road that we, you know, tore out of their sanctuary. Oh, See, if you that, want to get picky about it. That, that, that's my thing is like every year there are like headlines of, you know, shark, uh, predator shark seen near beach area. And I'm like, shouldn't that read humans encroach on sharks uh, sanctuary? <laughs> <laughs> I, certainly from the shark perspective it should. Yeah, I, mean, I mean that's the thing is like you know because we as humans consider ourselves to be you know the top of the food chain we I, I am constantly reminded of the fact that at the end of the day we 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 are living with them and we encroach upon their habitat and and then get like confused to when some of them get a little antsy about it but with alligators i think Good Lord. I mean, I'm sure the the further you get into Florida, uh, especially when you're into the more swamp areas of Florida, which uh, I think is, you know, what, 95% of the state? Where does Shag live again? Tallahassee. Yeah. Yeah. That's so uh, that you kind of just need those signs as a mm -hmm. as a thing. Like, we, we don't have anything like that. Um the, the, we don't actually have any wildlife signs except like deer Xing. Uh, the, the signs that I find most uh, offensive are the slow children at play because it's just pointing out that there's some kids in the neighborhood that you know just aren't as advanced. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> and, and, and that just, you know it's just like why are you why are you doing that? That just seems mean. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm trying to direct the hate mail towards me tonight. So. <laughs> Send all hate mail to views from the long box. <laughs> To Michael at FortressOfBailey2.com. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And, and the, the funny thing about like those signs is, is shouldn't you be careful wherever you are? <laughs> like, to, to, is it really just we, we only have to be careful where there's children who you know are handicapped? Have, have you have you ever driven in the Atlanta area? These people. I can tell you, I have not. I mean, I, I, and I come from like living near Jersey, okay, where those people have lost all will to live when they get behind the wheel. These people, oh my God, yeah, I, I, it, it, it was crazy. One time I went to Atlanta, I actually I got into the car of a strange guy that I just met on the internet. Hey, wait, that was Mike Bailey. <laughs> See, this, this, this is where I'm constantly reminded why I'm friends with the people I'm friends with. Uh, you got in the car so we could go find cheap comics. Sadly, yeah, no quarter. And we did. You loved the book, Doug. It's just like... 50 cents? I can accept that. But uh, he, Alan immediately starts tweeting his wife uh, on a Leroy Jethro Gibbs phone. Uh, <laughs> and he's uh, like... upgraded since then got into a car with man I met on internet. And I'm just like, you know, when you really think about it, that is all of us podcasters. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've thought about that many times. I think I've even had conversations with you guys about that. It just boggles my mind because we are the, the you know, the modern age equivalent of pen pals. Yeah. And, and we've all become good friends over the years. And it's like, wow, I have all these good friends whom I've never met. <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's become my mission to, to try and cut down the list of friends who I haven't met. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was just uh, kind of... If you'd ever be willing to leave New York City, then maybe we could meet. I was in Alligator <laughs> Central just two weeks ago. Oh, no. <laughs> Where did you guys end up uh, eating, by the way? Uh, we went to a place in... in uh... Oh, actually, eating. Oh boy, uh, <laughs> we we you know we started in uh, what I remember as downtown Disney, which is now Disney, Disney Springs, Springs. Uh, yeah. and we were going to go to Jock Whatever's. I don't remember the last name, which I had no idea until Scott told me it's uh, named after the pilot from the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Start the engine, Jock. That's uh, that's my pet snake, Reggie. You know that guy. <laughs> okay. I, I had no clue. And there's actually a boat that's docked there called Reggie, um, which I just found fascinating. But we started out going there, but that didn't work out because they didn't open till later. So we went over to another place in Disney Springs. I can't remember the name of it. And we had a couple of cocktails and just some snacks. Then we went comic shop hopping, and we hit a couple of places, and you know, we, we got a couple of things, nothing you know, nothing crazy. Uh, and then we went to this all-you-could-eat Chinese buffet uh, oh my. that Matt Hunsworth's wife, Christy, recommended. And I think we all were somewhat the worse for wear after that was done. <laughs> <laughs> and Shag, bless his little heart, uh, pointed out to us, you might not want to touch the fish that's been sitting around all day. Yeah, <laughs> and that was very good advice because I was actually looking at some of the fish and thinking of taking some, uh, which was foolish of me. But as it is, it sat in my stomach like it, you know, like cement. As you know, anyway. But that's where we ended up eating. The then, one... then little by little, some of the crowd, dis- you know, disappeared, and we uh, we ended up. Uh, me, 
I'm trying to think of who was with us at that point. It was me, Scott, Bill, uh, Scott and, and Bill's sons, Ben and Logan, and Matt Hunsworth. The, the bunch of us ended up at my the resort I was staying in, hanging out in a, you know one of the common areas and just kind of shooting the breeze for a few hours. Yeah, I, I forget the name of the shop that I was really impressed with down there. But when you walk in, it has like the Red Hulk and the Green Hulk. Giant yeah, we statues. we went we went there, and uh, I, that I was a, it was a very nice shop. Uh, yes, very clean, organized, uh, they, and they have some they, reasonably priced books, which is nice. And and what I liked most about it is that it seemed to cater to a wide variety of comic book fans so it wasn't just the people like looking for they had back issues which was nice they also had like a really nice graphic novel selection which i realize you know from a from a business level may not always be the best idea because then you just basically have products sitting there inventory Mm -hmm. Uh, but i guess if you're in kind of a resort town that's probably a better idea because then you're just increasing the likelihood that someone someone may not want to buy a bunch of back issues but they may want to pick up a trade or, or a hardcover or something it's much easier to read that around the pool or... mm-hmm. I wound up getting my long sought after ah sounds like fun in the Bailey house I, I, uh, I wound up getting my long sought after and unable to find at a decent price until then copy of Defenders number 10 to complete my run of the Defenders. Nice. So I was very, very, very happy good. with that. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't, like, ridiculously high-priced either. So I said, okay, just time to bite the bullet and get it. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. You know, it wasn't a quarter. Therefore, it was not a bargain. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's funny you bring that up because uh, this past weekend, as we're recording this, I don't know when the episode's going to actually air, we had the, the second Atlanta Comic-Con uh, happened in Atlanta, and it's it's a it's a great con. I, the the great thing about it though is that the people that were there were not people that you would normally see at a con. There were a lot of families. Uh, it was just a it was a really diverse uh, cr- uh, crowd, which kind of made sense because you know this stuff has gone so mainstream that you know they may not want to go to Dragon Con because it's got a bit of a reputation. But like a one day uh, con or a or a two or three day con at the Georgia World Congress Center, which you know is the, the the place where these types of things are held, and I you know I've been divesting myself of most of my collection recently, but uh, I recently did the the final sort basically, and I decided that I'm not going to completely stop buying comics, but it's not going to be like before when I would just come home with like truckloads of books and like, I'm going to read these one day, but it's been so long since I've hit the bins that it, it was really weird. Like they didn't have any 50 They didn't have any quarter bins. I'm sorry, Alan. Uh, they, they didn't have any, uh, they didn't have any 50 cent bins either, which was a little disappointing, aye, aye, aye. but the ones that had dollar bins had like a dollar each 30 for 20 bucks. So, Perceived value is perceived value. And it was interesting. I was with a buddy of mine who uh, is into a lot of geeky stuff, but he's never really gotten into comics. And he was watching me go through the bin, the bins. And I, and I, like I said, I haven't done this in so long. And I came away with 20 or so books. I felt like I fell off the wagon one. I felt like, you know, <laughs> like, 
which, you know, I was the, the guy that went back into the bar after like five years of not taking a drink. But he was just like, he was just like, wow. I was like, what? He's like, I've never seen somebody go through a bin like that. I go, you don't hang with my crew. <laughs> we, we are professionals, sir. And I was explaining like the one time Scott Gardner and I went to one of the one day, the one day shows that happened four times a year here in Atlanta. We were each other's wingman. It was like you it was like a per, like, like like goose mm-hmm. and maverick. Like, <laughs> hey man, hey man, were you looking for this? Yeah, I was looking for this, and I got another buddy Garrett who does the same thing, and he's just like, I'm sorry, I couldn't help. I'm like, no, you're not into it, but it's always great to have that wingman. That comes in handy because it's just it, it, like I miss that, but I don't. If that makes any sense, like I miss the camaraderie of that. I do not miss spending the money. Yeah, it's, it's the spending the money and the giving up the household space. Yeah, <laughs> though I was as long as I around. can get mine uh, organized, labeled, and hidden—I mean, put away before my wife gets home—that really <laughs> helps. But the great thing about this con is that when you like when you come into a certain area of it, you see like the t-shirt vendors and the people like with all like the the guys selling lightsabers and stuff. And I'm like, where are the comics? I thought they were because they advertised that they were a big comic. They were going to have a lot of comic dealers and they did. It, they were just all at the front because uh, we came in through a side door. But if you come through the front door, the first thing you see are comics. But it's really interesting watching, walking through the in, different vendors and seeing what they have on their walls and I walked by one, and I walked away from it, and I was just kind of snickering. And my buddy was just like, what are you laughing at? I go, they have a web of Spider-Man number 100 with the spider the spider? For $10. And I wanted Maury Povich to come up to them and, and be like, sir, I see that you have a web of Spider-Man number 100 on your uh, back." backboard there for ten dollars our experts have determined that that is a lie and you need to stop doing that like 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 who would pay ten dollars for that when it is how many have you seen alan in the quarter bin have you seen it many of those yeah (laughs) see you can't even put a number on it (laughs) less than torak more than defenders number 10 (laughs) i like it perfect is is that going to be like the next uh, the next podcast? Is it is it Turok the dinosaur <laughs> is it or is it Defenders number ten? That could be the standard. Now, I mean, since, since that became the focus of my Defenders purchase, since it became the only issue I was missing, I have looked for it. You know, I, I it's been one in particular that I've looked for whenever I go into a store, and I don't think I've seen it cheaper than forty dollars. Mm. And I was not per- I was not purchasing it for that amount. Uh, I will not disclose the exact number that I paid for it, but I can teen tell 25 you twenty five cents and forty dollars. I can tell you it ended with the word teen. Hey, there you go. <laughs> What's the condition like? I would say good. Okay, that's acceptable. It's not but- whipped to shit. <laughs> But it's not in mint either. Yeah, the, the, that the <laughs> whip to shit is the the condition that my uh, my friend Garrett gave me a copy of the death of Gwen Stacy in, and uh, I kept that one. That was one of the books that I kept. Uh, it it was actually a little depressing doing this final push 
like getting all the ones that I know that I'm not going to be able to sell on eBay together to sell like to a, a local dealer. Uh, I, when I got done, I actually looked at Rachel and she, she, she said, are you okay? And it's just like, I'm okay that I'm doing this, but it's still a little sad. Because, and it's more said not that I'm getting rid of them because I feel like I'm actually getting a, a growth removed to a certain extent. <laughs> but I, I think it's just that I'm closing the door on that area of my collecting. Mm-hmm. I know exactly that. what you're talking about because I've culled down my collection significantly uh, in recent days uh, in a similar vein. And uh, I have about 11 long boxes down in the basement that are to be uh, dispersed somehow or another for whatever prices they can be gotten. <laughs> but it's it's hard it's hard to reach that level where you start saying, you know what, I'm never gonna look, I'm never gonna pull these from the box, I'm never gonna look at them, and I'm never gonna take pride in the fact that I own them. So why are they here taking up space? That was actually the 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 smell test, so to speak, that I did when I was going through them. I'd, I'd look at a like some of them. I know, okay, that's going, that's going. Then, then I would stare at one, and I'm like, Do I want to keep this? Is this is? This? And, and it's funny the ones that I kept. It's just you would expect like all of my image comics to go, but I I just can't quit my young bloods, man, and I have no idea why. And 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 I know I know some of them are terrible. But it was just like, you know, I went out of my way to find all of these. So, and, and I do want to read them. Now, I, I, I got rid of the brigades and the blood strikes and the nightmares and the chapels and the uh, Battlestar Galacticas. Because Liefeld had the Battlestar Galactica license for like five minutes in the mid-90s and put out like three different series. <laughs> One written by Richard Hatch, I might add. Huh. Uh, or at least it says it was written by Richard Hatch. It's Liefeld, so I, you know, maybe written by, as in we paid him for the name. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> so, but uh, no, it's 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 you know like I have all like most of my Superman books left, but the one it, it was funny looking at the collection that I kept. It was basically there's stuff that's more modern and there's stuff from like the later 90s but a lot of it's from like that 1986 to 1995 time period and I realized the re- halfway through like why I was selecting is because that was kind of my golden age of being a collector Sure. like before things got serious and everything was fun so uh, and that's where I'm trying to be when I buy a book like I picked up some books like I said at the convention but it was only like okay one I'm definitely going to read these it's not just picking them up. And two, why am I buying them? Why am I buying Deathlock comics from the late 80s? Because I remember seeing them on the, 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 the stands and stuff. They always looked kind of cool. And most of them are written by Dwayne McDuffie. So right there, I know I'm at least in for some good writing. So, But, but part of my smell test on that is... What I what I said earlier was the, the last test, basically, though, is that I'm going to have pride in owning these. I want to own them because it's something I want to collect. Because if it's just to read the stories, there are other ways, and there are other legitimate ways. I don't even want to make it sound nefarious. There are other legitimate ways to read virtually any story you want to read, mm-hmm. whether it be uh, comiXology or, you know... 
I don't know about every other part of the country, but over here the library has extensive, yes, uh, mm-hmm. you know, graphic novel se- sections. And I can't, you know, between, you know, the the Nassau County library system, I could get virtually any graphic novel that I want to read. Uh, you know, because if they don't have it at my branch, it's at another branch, and you just request it, and they send it over. So there are ways of me reading virtually anything I want. So it has to be something where I feel strongly that I'd like to own it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah. I might buy some books now where I own it, it completes my collection, and I'm not going to sit and read it because I can read it without damaging it online. I'm owning it because I want it as part of my collection. Right. Yeah. One of the nice things about either 25 cents or 50 cent boxes, there's a uh, store that I've recently been ma- made aware of that has uh, 50 cent boxes as far as the eye can see, is uh, I can read them and then I don't need to keep them. I yeah. can donate them, I can send them off to buddies, I can do whatever I want with them. And that's, there's so little investment of money. That mm-hmm. it, it's not that 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 doesn't have to be part of the decision. I paid fourteen bucks for this. I probably shouldn't just shred it or put it in the recycling bin. I probably should actually maybe keep this one. Or you know, when you have that type of investment, and it makes that decision a lot tougher. But if you sort of are are uh, going into the relationship with the comic, uh, understanding that this, that this might be a very short term fling. <laughs> well, I, I, I've had I've had situations where I'm the happy recipient of a Professor Allen care package, and and usually what I do is I feel compelled to look at the dollar amount that's on the uh, the, the postage, <laughs> and then consider how much more that is than the cost of what you must have paid for the books that you've Almost sent me. Almost always, it is more. <laughs> And, and and I find that amusing when you've you've spent you know two dollars and sixty cents to send me books that you purchased for about fifty cents. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> that that goes on to a uh, another subject of how outrageous uh, postage can be. Uh, I know Alan loses even more money if he sends it overseas because. Uh, Wow, I, 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 I just don't get I it. I love like, Andy Leyland, but uh, you are you are off my comics recipients list. I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean that's. I, I, there's been things I've wanted to send to Andy, and I just don't because the postage is ridiculous. Yeah, I've been building up a box for about two years now, of of stuff that I've picked yeah. up, or, or <laughs> it's like it's like okay, I'll, I'll, I'll mail that eventually, but it, it's going to be later because good God, I mean. Well, that is often often when folks get a uh, get a care package from me, it has three or four comics in it. Because that I figured there's a particular rate. Okay, it's the large envelope rate. That if you put five comics in, it goes over the weight limit. Oh, it goes so from there's a method to, your to like two sixty to like you know five five bucks. And, so and if you can get it just small enough. Or, or you have to, you know, wait to get twenty or twenty-five and, and send them. And and I guess it also depends on when the comic was published as well would affect the weight, because I've I've in moving so many boxes recently, I would pick up a box and go, oh yeah, these are books from like the the eighties and, and <laughs> very early nineties, and then you pick up another box and you need a spotter, and it's like, oh yeah, these are all printed on that thick as hell paper. <laughs> they also that. They, that 
they also for some of the ma- uh, some of the postage rates they have to be able to bend, mm-hmm. which means some of those some of that paper stock <laughs> on 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 covers or if you get books from me they're not all going to be boarded for the same reason too. But but it's funny the the, the ultimate lesson for me was is that it doesn't matter if the comic is not well thought of. It makes me happy, and that's all that really matters. Oh, I totally I mean, agree with that. I mean, I've I've read books that are considered classics, and I enjoyed them. You know, I, I like Watchmen. Uh, I, I liked a, a Contract with God was an amazing uh, piece of graphic literature. But you know, there will be nothing more than to bring a smile to my face of picking up a book that I saw when I was like twelve or thirteen years old on a spinner rack and had to pass it up. <laughs> And it could be terrible, but it makes me happy because it's it, it's not just the story, it's not just the art, it's not just the writing, it's the time period, the experience, and remembering. You know, we're we're thirty years out now from the summer of '89, and for a lot of people, it's like a cultural touchstone for for geeks, really, uh, especially ones that were alive at that during that year, because you know Batman was everywhere, where the previous year he wasn't. I was explaining this to one of the younger associates. I mean, like, people were getting the bat symbol carved into the sides of their head, you know, in their hair. And he's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, it was a thing. I'm glad you clarified it by saying it was their hair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like BV, it's like Batman v Superman. He would just come up and punch it into your face. Um, <laughs> and uh, Wouldn't be the first time. And but there is something about the comics that were produced that year because I was that summer especially I remember buying more comics than I normally did because uh, I had some lawn mowing money and nothing will beat euphemism? that just, the what euphemism lawn mowing no, money no no oh, okay. it was it was I was actually <laughs> all right geez, Paul I was thirteen years old come on <laughs> plus I had no access to marijuana um. But it, and it's the same for the summer of '92. It was the summer I had my first like real job, and suddenly I was I was buying way more. So some people would look at the rise of the Midnight Suns and think, oh, that's peak '90s, right? Peak early '90s. Yeah, Ghost Rider and Blade and Dark. Well, Darkhold was terrible, but you know, you had all that. And I look at it and I go, I bought all of it and I put the poster on the back of my door. <laughs> <laughs> I kept those. Yeah, well, there's there's nothing wrong with that. If the, if if they give you the warm fuzzies, that's the way to go. Especially when you really consider the fact that you know we're probably never going to sell these for what we think they should go for, <laughs> or what, what you know what we hope they would go for. So you might as well just get keep the ones that give you enjoyment and really just leave it at that. That guy really was proud of that web of Spider-Man number 100. <laughs> oh, good for him. <laughs> He's going to have it for a long time. <laughs> I, d- I don't understand it, Jake. It's just not moving. It's got a silver cover. <laughs> These kids, they don't know nothing. <laughs> it's, it's- terrible issue i'm sorry it was objectively it's a bad story but you know what there's somebody out there that collected spider-man when they were like a teenager kid whatever 
And that was the one book they always wanted and they never got it, and they don't know the existence of 50-cent bins. <laughs> that will pay $10 for that. I and I feel really bad for that person and his family. <laughs> Who knows? There's probably somebody out there saying, we found a sucker to buy that Defenders number 10. <laughs> finally, finally, the right guy walked into the store. The right moron came. <laughs> But even, know, even at that, uh, you know, the first thing I did was say, you know, could you could you do anything with the price? And the guy, <laughs> the guy was actually pretty cool, and he was like, hey, I could take twenty percent off. So that's the leeway they give me. See, you, you, you can do that with a collectible. That 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 I think is an acceptable question to ask at a comic shop or you know any time where you're buying something on the secondary market. I hated it at work when someone's like, "Can you do something better than this price?" It's like, no, that's what corporate set. Well, you know what? People are used to it, though, with a lot of bigger ticket items. Now, I don't know mm -hmm. if they're doing something like that with you with the low ticket items, in which case oh, yeah, all that would be kind of annoying. But the bigger ticket items, if somebody's coming into a Staples and they're looking to buy you know, a high-end copy or something, and they say, can you do something with the price, I don't blame them. Somebody's yeah, buying a ream of paper and says that, it's like, you know, shut up and just pay the money. Well, you got to... These folders are 39 cents? About four for a dollar, Mr. Mike. Come on, come on. Well, the thing you have to realize is that Office Depot, Staples, any of these places that have both like a retail end and a copy center, percentage-wise, we make more money off of a 15-cent copy than a laptop or a printer just because the margins are so thin. And they tell me that we have to have the margins so thin to stay competitive I don't know if I quite believe that. It sounds reasonable, but yeah, that's why even on printers, it's just like I'm not making any money on this anyway. So I yeah. can't really take well, anything. Else. I, I think you know if the reality is you can't. It, it's actually so much easier if you can't do anything with it. Yeah, and you can just say, you know what, I don't have any, uh, you know, discretion on this. This is the price, and if you want to pay it, that's great. And if you don't want to pay it, thank you for your uh, for your time, and we'll see you next time you need something. We'll see you when you come crawling back because you can't get this cheaper. <laughs> I love those people. <laughs> I don't. I. I don't know if I've ever revealed this to Dragon Con's Michael Bailey, but for a year, the job I had after my first job out of college, worked for a CPA firm, and then I went to work for an office supply store okay. chain in the uh, in the corporate. The chain that eventually got bought by Staples at some point, and uh, so I was in the in the accounting office, you know, at uh, corporate. And uh, our strategy there at that store seemed to be to lose money on every sale, but make up for it in volume. Huh? That uh, does not. Really How does that compute? Was it a publicly traded company? No, we were not. So we're losing okay. money on every sale, but by multiplying <laughs> that by thousands... That seemed to be, that seemed to be the business plan. No, I didn't it, quite it, understand it. Because the reason I ask that is when I, when I worked for my previous big, big uh, office supply, big box store, they were publicly traded. You know? So it, it, for some reason, the board of directors thought that top-line sales cured all. Like if you had, like if the number 
of your sales at the end of the day was high, that was good. I'd even rather we, have profits personally. Yeah, and that's the thing is, is like, well, yeah, but we're not making any money off of this. But for some reasons, through you know the accounting, is that they could make it look like that's the number they present to the investors and the people you know buying stock, and therefore it somewhat looks good. And I'm just like, no, this this is terrible. This is <laughs> this is not how this works. This is not how any of this works. But you know, I was I was told to shut up and do my job. So <laughs> sometimes so, sometimes it's better just to to not. Look, retail <laughs> is just a retail is just a giant three card monty game, anyways. So let's 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 be real about the situation that we're in. Is that every I, I've been doing this long enough to know that the thing that we consider really important right now was not important five years ago. But it's now the most important thing ever, and that you just have to ride with that if you're going to stay in the business. And so. it won't be important in two and a half years. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So. But, so comic books. Let's talk some <laughs> comics. <laughs> this is Investment Hour with Mike, Paul, and, Sk- and Alan. <laughs> <laughs> so who wants to go first on their books? Because you know what? I'm being billed today. <laughs> you did not bring a book. It's okay. You're the producer today. The MC, if you will. Well, I will go first. Okay. As, uh, we've already referenced my book in terms of uh, uh, Paul's life story, and uh, or at least uh, experiences in the Big Apple. Uh, this is a book that came into my possession via the great Kansan Greg Arujo, so I actually paid zero dollars for it. Wow, that's a zero bargain. cents. And uh, it is called New York, Year Zero, number four, from Eclipse Comics, cover dated October 1988, with a pretty high cover price for the era of two bucks, mm-hmm. which explains why it wasn't otherwise in my collection. I was never going to pay that. Kidding me? We have a cover uh, by Mark Johnson with a crew of uniformed folks with guns, and they are seem to be wading through the sewers. Folks are, you know, sort of in greens, and the ones in the background are in purples, except for one that stands out with her orange clothes and long blonde hair. That's right. There's a girl here. So, uh, what do you think of the cover? I, I love most Eclipse covers. Uh, it seemed like Eclipse of the kind of independent companies of the time period really put a lot of effort into uh, the artwork on the cover. I, I can't think of an Eclipse cover that I've seen that went, "Wow, that's really bad." Mm-hmm. Whereas, like you see some like you know like covers to adolescent radioactive black belt hamsters, <laughs> which would be uh, which would be you know contemporary with this, and you're just like, eh, I don't know. Because Eclipse was like one of those things where they were independent, but they were still extremely professional at the same time. I mean, they, they had some really good people working for them. So I like that she's colored orange because it really makes her stand out like that and the yellow hair. Uh, but I, I just, I think it's a, the background details are amazing. And I just, I like the shading on the people in the background. This is an I would say this is an amazing cover on a, an objective art standpoint. 
I'm going to slightly differ, only slightly, uh, in that I like the cover. I like all of the renderings on it, except, sadly, the guy in front, the guy in the foreground. His positioning just looks off to me. The way he's holding the gun, his arm angle, uh, just everything looks just a little bit off and stiff to me on him. But he is really scruffy. Yeah, he is scruffy, which in the 80s meant he was cool. But I, then the other, I like would be I, I, by Don Johnson. What's that? In the movie would be played by Don Johnson. In all likelihood, unless they couldn't get Don Johnson, in which case they would get a uh, who's the guy? Uh, David Keith. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, like I said, you know, I, you you're. I, I focused on him initially. And it made me not so crazy about the cover. And then when you point, like just now, when you pointed out like the background detail, I started looking a little bit more closely on that. I let my eyes come off of the main image and and check more of the background. And I do like all of that a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I thought, uh, you know, for me, you know, covers are not the things that grab me. Uh, off of, you know, I'm not. That's usually not what convinces me to buy a comic. Other than, I mean, what do you pull out of the? You know, out of the back issue bin, the top three inches of the cover. You know, and there, what you're looking for is the title, right? So, I mean, re realistically, uh, um, you know, it's, very rarely is a comic cover going to sell it for me. But uh, I, I, I like the color scheme. I like the I like the design elements, and uh, that guy's pretty scruffy. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> So that's a selling point for you. Exactly. <laughs> now, the, the story, which has no name that I could find, was written by Ricardo Barrero, with art by Juan Zanato. And for listeners' information, this is a black-and-white comic. And we start inside an urban assault vehicle of some kind, one of a couple that are patrolling a pretty empty street. The soldiers have been joined by a woman, Miss Carson, it's her father's death that they have to avenge. She is told not to join them, but guess what she does? She joins them. Oh wow, she that's that's out of left field. Yep. She, uh, <laughs> I didn't see it coming. She manages to scheme herself into the team exploring the sewers. Now, one of the team members is attacked. What they assume is a mutant shark, but as I think we established earlier, is probably a gator of some kind. So, so this, it, is this is not New York. This is Florida. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those ones you guys uh, exa exactly flushed it down your toilet somehow, got into your sewer system. I don't, details. I, 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 don't, I don't understand. You big city folk. Uh, the, it, she reveals herself. They climb out of the sewer near a fortress that they needed to storm. And much to the surprise of a fella just minding his own business, uh, let's just say doing his business, reading a comic book, they storm the fortress and run roughshod through the guards on sight. Within two hours, the invincible fortress was in their hands. I guess it was invincible. Miss Carson approaches the boss and demands to know where Rofeller is hiding. They find the door the big boss is behind, which hasn't been opened in years, which is always a good sign. Busting in, 
They learn that Rofeller has been dead for years and that the computer AI system has been running the organization since then, having been built and programmed to succeed him. But she just plumb doesn't care and fires a grenade-looking thing right into the computer console. And that was how Delphina Carson avenged her father's death. What happened later? Many, many things. But as Kipling would say, that's another story. The end. And that is the end of the four-issue series, New York, Year Zero. Huh. <laughs> I always think it's it's. I always like it when I find those magic two words at the end of a story. The end. Oh, I thought you were gonna say twenty five cents. Because <laughs> uh, you know, that's key for me. Because when you're looking at cheap bins, looking for cheap book and just just reading books, reading quality books, I almost always put back the ones that say to be continued. It, it, it's funny that you. Uh... That you say that because when I got to the end of it and said the end, uh, since I've been binging some quarter bins uh, recently, I was like, oh yeah, Alan loves this one. It, it's an issue exactly. four. One, it's an issue four. Either one or four. Those are the important ones because exactly. two and threes are a little sketchier. <laughs> and that it actually had a definitive ending. I, what I liked about this issue though, is that with a little tweaking of the dialogue at the beginning, this could have been a one shot. This could have been like a solid right. Twilight Zone, uh, you know, Outer Limits type story because it has kind of that twist at the end, uh, you know, of the the bad guy being dead for several years and the AI is the one that's been running everything, uh, which is why I think I enjoyed it as much as I did because I, I didn't I could read what happened before, but they wrote this issue in such a way that I didn't need to read exactly what exactly that 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 makes a big difference. And I guess from a from a publishing point of view, that's not a sin at all, mm. unless unless people begin to expect it, because if people expect it, then they may say uh, on your next miniseries, well, I'm just going to pick up the last issue. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to bother before that. But you don't want people who pick up just the last issue to feel like, well, that was a waste of my money either. So you got to find that balance, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm also curious, you know, kind of the from a from a, a business angle of what the editorial thinking was at Eclipse because they're not Marvel and they're not DC, uh, which isn't an insult. But Marvel and DC have IPs that you know it's it's there's going to be another issue of Spider-Man next month, you know. <laughs> yeah, pretty much we can we can write that in the books and. <laughs> With most comic shops, uh, and I don't know if this was true in the 80s, but I know it's it's been true within the last 10, 15 years, is that you know your first issue, and issue number one is going to get a heavy order, but it's going to fall by like 30% with issue two, and then like another 10 to 15% with issue three. I don't know if those numbers are exactly right, but it's it, the, the theory is still uh, whole. So it almost makes sense that you know your issue four would be strong because it wouldn't get ordered as much but if someone came across it and they couldn't find issues two and three they can still read it and go oh okay this makes sense and that's that's why issue two is often the most collectible you know issue Mm -hmm. one is the one everybody wants just because of the you know the cachet of a number one issue Mm 
but issue two is often the hardest one to find in the back issues in the back issue bins mm-hmm. for because it is usually you know much more under ordered right and yeah and if if a book uh if a book picks up yeah two and three are usually i mean if we're talking about an, an especially an, an, an what ends up being an ongoing and sometimes ongoings weren't always in you know intended to be ongoings at first they sort of get uh, get converted sometimes but usually you have the you know you have what the orders and the sales in from issue one by the time certainly by the time four is being printed sometimes by three so those are the ones two and three are the ones that tend to get uh, to get under ordered yes if if a book does really hit and 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 take off yes so i mean Again, you know, number one is always going to have the cachet. And I'm, I'm thinking about a series that may not have been heralded, and I'm going to use Walking Dead mm-hmm. as kind of my uh, mm-hmm. hypothetical example. You know, people didn't know it at the time when it was coming out that it was going to be the big thing that it is. Uh, so, you know, number one is always going to be the most sought-after issue, and for that reason it'll, it'll have a significant value. But I bet you, in the grand scheme of things, Issues two and three are much harder to find. The price tag on it might be a slightly slightly lower, but I bet you they're harder to find. Because by then, by the time you get to printing four, five, and six, you know you have a hit on your hands mm-hmm. and, can, and can crank up the print runs. And I don't, I don't know at what point in that particular series they would have even known that they had a hit. I, I do think it, you know it was in the first story arc that they realized, hey, you know, people are, are into this, but. I don't know, like when the uh, the actual print run increased on the first right. on the first run. You know, I, I know you know in those early issues they did second printings on a lot of them, but as far as the the initial print run, I'm not sure at what point they decided. You know what? This is a series we have to you know mass produce. Yeah, I I, I can somewhat speak to that because recently I re-listened to the Audible version of a book called Comic Shop which was a, a history of the secondary market uh, going back to the late 60s and, you know, Phil Suling and uh, how New York City was kind of like one of the big areas of, of the comic as a uh, retail side of it kind of came up. And one of the things that they talked about, because it's an interesting book in that you are reading the history of it, but every once in a while the writer goes to a comic shop that he spent like a year at going in and out and talking to the owner and apparently walking dead was one of those books that comic shops made because the shop owners liked it so they kept pushing it and Mm. and then suddenly it has an audience because and i think that's where the shop owner kind of gets short shrift of of how most companies, especially in the in the nineties, uh, in the eighties and nineties, figured that your audience wasn't the audience. Your audience, your 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 audience is really the the shop owners because they're the ones right. that are ultimately buying the product from you. Uh, I always balk at that because it's just like you know, you know, I'm but ultimately I'm the one buying the product from them. But at the same time, a shop a shopkeeper or a shop owner can make or break a book. By telling by either not stocking it or telling the people not to buy it. Now, why you would bring something into your place where you're selling stuff and say don't buy this, I don't know. But <laughs> we know that happens. 
but we know that happens. So, I also think, just specifically on 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 Walking Dead, that was one obviously where the trades, yeah, uh, you know, drove. Uh, I think I think drove drove traffic to the individual comics and and vice versa. I think the trades created a, a whole new type of market in that particular book. Yeah. Because that became one of the series where I know people became very trade conscious mm-hmm. and they would wait. And and I think it's one of the perfect series for that because each issue would be a fairly quick read. Mm-hmm. So to pick yes. up a trade and have six issues was, you know, price tag aside, I, I apologize, Alan, uh, price tag aside... Let's just say it's a much more library. satisfying read. <laughs> yeah, and they were smart because they always priced the first volume at like ten bucks, so it's a little cheaper than other trades, uh, and cheaper even for the same amount of content in volumes two, three, and four. But uh, you know, you you get them hooked on that ten. That ha- that's what happened to me. Is just like okay, I'll finally read this. This was before the TV series. Uh, I was just like okay, I'll finally read Walking Dead. Okay, the first volume is ten bucks. And the next week I bought volumes two and three. And the next week I bought volumes four and five. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just like, I, and suddenly it's just like, oh man, they got me. <laughs> they got me so hardcore. And very, very, very similar, not in storyline, but in reading, uh, especially considering it's the same writer, uh, was Invincible. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I picked those up at the library and it was like, you know, once I'd, I'd go through a volume, it was like, okay, you know, where can I find the next volume? And I just I just flew through those early. Uh, I, I I flew through I don't know probably the first like ten trades on that, and at that point I was kind of caught up on it. And then for whatever reason I didn't continue with it after that, which I kind of feel I should, because I know that story had an actual finite telling to it. That so, it that it, that the story actually ended and concluded, uh, which is. Different, you know, in in the American markets, you don't see that often with a, with a property like that. They usually, you know, seek to be able to continue long term, you know, like you know, a la Marvel. So with this issue specifically, I, I would say that it is a solid science fiction story. I mean, it's got a lot of cliches in it. You know, the 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 tough as nails commander doesn't want. The person he doesn't think is trained to be there to come with them, but she finds a way to do it anyways. And there's kind of like a little twist at the end where the the guy that they've hated and have been hunting and you know ostensibly the villain is been dead for several years, but the air conditioning kind of mummified him. Uh, points on using the ter- the word putrefaction, by the way, <laughs> in this. That's 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 a good fifty cent word. And then at the end, you know, she she destroys the AI anyway. So it's not like it's it's not like life changing, but it's incredibly entertaining to read nonetheless. And the action was really good throughout the issue as well. Yeah, I was I was completely unfamiliar with the title, and and with the writer uh, as well. I mean, maybe those low expectations kind of helped, but I did I thought it ended up being eminently readable without having to make a lot of excuses for it. Like, you know, for a black and white book, for an indie book, mm-hmm. for a book from this era, you know, sometimes we, we have to go through those, uh, jump through those hoops hoops to make an excuse for something, but I, I didn't feel like like I had to do that for this. Well, let me, let me ask you, where do you guys fall on the black and white aspect of it? 
And by that I mean, uh, you know, do, do you find reading black and white books to be, you know, something you seek out? Are you indifferent about it? Is it something you generally try to avoid? You know, what do you think about the, you know, the just the black and white books in general? I could say, you know, for this, you know, for this era, I was um, sort of into the into the independence of the late '80s and early '90s, including and and a lot of them were uh, uh, were black and white, and I think uh, just a lot of the indie books uh, uh, were black and white. So I'm I'm not averse to that. I think it helps in a situation like this where I assume it was written to be black and white as opposed to like a showcase reprint or something mm-hmm. where you know an originally colored book gets dialed into black and white. Uh, so I think you know helping you know sort of the, the design and, and art aspects of it, assuming or knowing it'll be black and white helps. but obviously color is a huge. Um, it's a huge aspect of just on the very practical basis of being able to tell people apart, and you know, hair color, clothing color, that uh, uh, those very basic uh, personal identifiers. Uh, this one has the advantage of really there only being two characters, one a dude and one a, one a lady, who are have most of the the bulk of the talking. It's easy to keep them apart. Literally, just about everybody else is in a uniform with a helmet on, or a gas mask, or uh, you know. So, you know, uh, uh, having a small cast and uh, and l- literally having a scenario where most many of the background characters are literally anonymous. That certainly helps in terms of that that fundamental advantage that color can bring, it wasn't needed in this book. Right. I, I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of with Alan. I, I don't seek out black and white books, but for, to a certain extent, if I'm getting a independent book from like the mid to late eighties, I kind of want it to be black and white. Cause that feels, feels more authentic quote unquote uh, of being an independent book. And, and I also completely agree. It's all about the intent and if the artist is drawing it to be black and white, the early issues of the Incredible Hulk mag or the Hulk magazine from the seventies, right. mm-hmm. uh, the the way those those were black and white, but there's severe shading, and it, it, it was designed to be black and white. Where if you colorize those, they wouldn't look right, in my opinion. Uh, and 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 also, yeah, it, it depends. Like if you. A good example is a lot of books from uh, DC in the, the late fifties and early sixties. Black and white. A lot of those guys look exactly alike. I mean, they're they're all a bunch of brown haired dudes. I mean, it's just there's. Mm-hmm. I, I need a I need a shirt color or something. Yeah, to, well, I've <laughs> recently working my way through the Challengers of the Unknown showcase, and of course they're designed to have four different hair colors. Yeah. Right. There's a brown haired guy, a black haired guy, a redhead, and a blonde. I mean that that's. A key, a key element of 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 the of the design of those characters is lost. And of course, if you've ever tried to read it, for example, a Green Lantern showcase, <laughs> it's pretty absurd. Well, I, I yeah, I, you know, just along the lines of what you're saying, 
in early Avengers issues, I don't see a hell of a lot of difference between civilian uh, Captain America and civilian uh, Hawkeye or civilian Giant Man at that point. They're all kind of drawn the same, you know, and, and black and white is not a good thing, although color doesn't necessarily help in the civilian identity either. Uh, the like, I generally prefer books that are colored because they're intended to be colored. I, I agree with your perspective on that. Uh, the one series I can remember uh, getting in its very early issues, and I guess it was in the late 70s, it may be the early 80s, back when uh, ElfQuest was still an independent book. Mm-hmm. Right. I was picking up those, you know, those oversized uh, issues as they came out, and they were black and white. And then in the mid-80s or the late-80s, Marvel acquired the license, and they colored them and, and reprinted them. And I thought they really lost something in the coloring process because they were not drawn to be color. And, of course, weren't we just talking about The Walking Dead? And Walking yeah. Dead. Well, I've never seen The Walking Dead in color except for that one issue where they did some color stuff. Yeah, but there's obviously a book designed to be black and white, and it looks great in black and white. Although, I do have trouble telling some of the people apart <laughs> in The Walking Dead comics. Maybe that's just me. Yeah. So, the copy of this book that we got... Uh, luckily has some of the ads and stuff in it, which is kind of like a treasure trove of neat stuff from this era. But there was one thing on the inside cover that kind of caught my eye and made me go to eBay to see. Uh, they were offering Iran Contra trading cards. <laughs> 36 hilarious full-color trading cards in a die-cut box. Hilarious. <laughs> An election year treat. Uh one guy is trying to sell it for twenty five. Mostly, it's six bucks plus shipping for, for, for the set. And and I'm just like, wow, that's that, that that's one of those things where that's a niche market within a niche market within a niche market. You know what I'm saying? It's just like it's an independent comic book company putting out trading cards of a scandal. So mm-hmm. uh, there was also an ad for a book called The Prowler. Didn't we cover an issue of that? We. We did, and I still feel bad, because that's a rough book. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's badly written. I'm not saying it's poorly drawn. I'm saying the subject matter is really difficult. Like, that is hardcore crime noir dealing with the seedy underbelly of the world. Because uh, it, it, it deals with, uh, with the second series dealt with uh, child trafficking. Uh, and the thing, they didn't go too graphic, but they showed a couple different things that made me want to beat somebody to death with a tire iron. Um, but it's also a good book, you know, at the same time. Like, it, it was very well done. Uh, and it was really exploring this young, like, 15-year-old kid who was basically the sidekick to this almost insane masked crime fighter. It's like, like, take the shadow, but make him, like, hardcore and even more hardcore than he was uh, in the pulps. So, uh, I, 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 it's like one of those things, like, I'd recommend it on a creative level. I don't recommend it if you just want something to read for enjoyment. <laughs> well, uh, looking at the, the, the actual copy, the, the, the next page, or probably the next page in that scan, is also uh, an, an house ad for Fusion which was not a bad sci-fi uh, series either. 
from Eclipse. Um, the Prowler, I have some familiarity only because we did cover the one issue way back when, and I, I, I don't know if you brought that to us that time, yeah. Mike. You did? I, I uh, brought the Indy, yeah. Okay. Uh, and I don't really remember the book that well, but Fusion, I have no familiarity with at all. <laughs> Eclipse was just a, was a neat company, in my opinion, uh, because it, it had a real, like the... The books had a personality to them, like the letters, columns, and such. And Airboy, Airboy I'd recommend any day of the week. Uh, originally done by Tim Truman, and then Chuck Dixon came in and wrote it with Graham Nolan artwork uh, early in both of their careers. And it was uh, it was just a really good modernization of a, con- of a Golden Age concept uh, that you know went for like, 60 some odd issues and had a couple different spinoffs. You had Valkyrie, you had Sky Wolf. So it was really one of those things where if you can find these in kind of the cheap bins, I would recommend them because they're, they're well worth reading Uh, around this time period. Also Eclipse got the James Bond Mm -hmm. uh, license and uh, very briefly shout out to um, the Sutherlands. uh, Mike Grell, wrote and illustrated that mm-hmm. and the reason why that stood out to me is i i read comic scene around this time period the magazine that was a an offshoot of starlog and i remember the article and the and the mike grell artwork and it looked like a good book uh, i don't i don't know if that was the case but it looked good i know we covered one issue of james bond but i don't think it was a mike grell. i don't think it was that one yeah we did. It was called the Serpent's Tooth, if I remember right, but I mm. don't remember who the art was by. Uh, unfortunately, when you do, you know, hundreds of episodes, after a while they start to blend a little bit. So, but people are welcome yeah. to look back in our catalog and find it. <laughs> yeah, but I, 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 I think of the indie publishers of the era, probably Eclipse and First, mm-hmm. are, are probably the ones that stand out in terms of lasting the longest. As Mike said, putting out some some series that had had pretty substantial runs in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, in terms of Eclipse, uh, Scout, the uh, Tim Truman book is uh, really good. Uh, Crossfire, one called it's a strange sci-fi thing. I did pick up a couple of them for a quarter recently, so I may talk about them somewhere at some point. <laughs> You'll find called, it for uh, called Laser Eraser. Okay. Bizarre sci-fi, something or another, but uh, they had sort of a weird combination of mostly sci-fi and fantasy type of books. So, do you want to rate this one? In terms of this one, uh, uh, you know, starting with the cover, which uh, which we've talked about. Um, I think that's a solid B, solid B cover. Again, I was maybe leaning towards B minus. Then I thought, well, you know, this is how I envision New York being. So <laughs> that 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 uh, that that cinema verite, I think, bumps it up to a B. You know, uh, armed teams patrolling the sewers. I just figure that's you know Thursday. So. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, 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 the art, you know, could be tough to follow a story that doesn't have, you know, color cues sometimes. 
but here here I thought that stuff was done pretty well when we talked about the color uh, the color aspects uh, again small cast you know some of those uh, type of choices uh, helped I thought the storytelling was was uh, reasonably good so that's a B ish as well maybe maybe B minus but the uh, the story again not knowing the setup it did seem like you this brought you right in at a reasonable place and brought it to a reasonable uh, conclusion. You know what it was about early on. It was about this uh, Carson, about her getting revenge for her father's death. And it was a twist ending. Another thing I've talked a lot about recently, the tendency for story, short stories, especially to end with that that little twist. That seems to be especially true with something with a little sci-fi twinge to it. I don't know if that's specifically the sort of Twilight Zone uh, uh, aspect, uh, but I was surprised not being overly familiar with the title or the characters or the setup to know what was going on following and enjoying it. So to me, that's a B for a B overall. It was a, a definite surprise, and I, I did say I'm sort of warmly disposed to the black and white comics of this era. This was this was me. Uh, and my first regular comic shop uh, situation, buying a lot of these Eclipse and Firsts and I don't know, Hero Press and Renegade and all those Pacific, all of those, uh, all of those weird, weird indie books off the shelves. Uh, not this one, but I thought it was a well, it was a solid, legitimate comic book with a decent twist ending. All right, Mike, you want to go? or You want me to go? Yeah, I'll go. Uh, I, I, I'm not really going to say anything different from Alan. I, I'd give the cover a solid B. Uh, like you said, like you pointed out, the uh, proportions of the guy in the front and the fact that he has, he's stubbly, which seems cliched, uh, kind of detracts from it. But it's, but it's a good, solid cover. Like, you see this cover on the stands, you would be, I would be interested in it. Uh, the interior art, I would say, is a B+. Plus. Uh, and, and it's weird why why my grade uh, went a little different. It's not like I want to see a guy sitting on the can with his pants around his ankle, <laughs> but what is he doing? Is he just sitting there reading, like telling people he's in the bathroom? Uh, so, but again, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't like the most amazing thing I've ever seen, but also it wasn't bad at all. And the story, I'm going to actually give an A minus because I kind of like mm-hmm. I liked the twist at the end. Yeah. I liked. Oh, it's it's the AI, and 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 here's where it went from being a B plus to an A minus. The AI going, no, wait, 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 I can help you. I'm like, okay, that's that's a cute little touch. So Ple- uh, pleading for its life. Yeah. So uh, B B plus and A minus for me. Okay. So what does that give it overall? Uh, I will. That will B+. give it a yeah. Yeah. That that's the average. Okay. For me. The guy on the front of the cover does detract from it fairly significantly, uh, but I, overall, you know, the, you, like I said, you pointed out, you know, the background work is really nicely done. It almost doesn't look like a cover the way it's laid out. It almost looks like it's just, you know, part of an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is intriguing, as you said, Mike, and I think it would catch my attention on the stands. Being the type of reader and collector I am, I, I normally gravitate towards you know the the Marvel and DC universes and 
don't 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 wander too far off that so i don't know if i would have been intrigued enough to buy this but i certainly would have been intrigued enough for it to for my eye to linger on it longer than it would normally um so I'm going to say the cover is, is successful in doing that, that it's going to catch your attention and, and kind of pull you in a little bit. So for that reason, I'm going to give it a B, where I might have gone C-plus otherwise. Now, let me let me in, 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 interrupt you just for a second, sure. Paul, to say that you are absolutely right. In what because respect? Because the first panel on page four of the book is the cover. Oh. oh, with 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 the scruff scruffy guy and blonde chick added. Other than that, is it is the exact same. The people coming down the stairs. Interesting. I did trip. not so notice you, that. You, so your your insight, your instinct that it didn't seem like a cover, is accurate. I like being accurate. You're good. You are good. <laughs> and that, now you got me thinking of Robert De Niro in Analyze This. Or analyze that, whichever one it was, when he's saying to Billy Crystal, you're good, and Billy Crystal's trying to be humble. He's like, oh, no, no. And he's, oh, yes, you are. Like, he starts getting angry at him. (laughs) Uh, The interior art, I generally like the way the things are drawn, but, and this is going to be kind of a, a different kind of criticism, on a book that's intended to be in black and white, I feel that they could have done a lot more with moody shading that they didn't. Uh, and it's almost like he left it open that they hadn't decided if it was going to be black and white or not. And he, he's left it so that you can color it. Uh, I, I think it, it lacks some shading. If, if, you, you know, if you're going through the book and you get to page three, uh, on the bottom row, the panel on the left... That looks the way, to me, a black and white book that is intended to be in black and white should have some of the color, you know, the the backgrounds and the shading and everything. Whereas, if you go to the page before, it looks like, okay, I've done this, now you got to color it. So, it, it, it kind of goes back and forth a little bit for me there, and I, and I feel like it's a little inconsistent in that respect. And it's not to say that the artwork is bad in any way, but I just feel a little bit more could have been done with it just to, to give it, to, to create a little bit more of a mood. Uh, that said, everything is drawn well. So it's difficult for me to come up with what grade I should give it. Uh, I think I'm going to just go with a solid B on the interior art. It's really well drawn. I just feel it could have been, it could have been more. Uh, and the story... I think you guys have hit it on the head. I think it's been it's it's a, a kind of an enjoyable story with a twist. It's not that difficult to follow, uh, but it does. But you don't feel like you you know you're flying through it in thirty seconds either. So I'm going to say a B on the story, and overall I'm going to give the book a B. All righty. Yeah, good. And I do like that there's an ad for Crazy Cat and Ignatz. Just because I don't even know in the 80s how many people would remember them. I remember seeing some cartoons of them as a young kid, but I haven't seen anything about oh, wow, anything right. with them in it for years and years and years. And even the ad highlights the fact that it was from 1916. <laughs> Just yeah, that, 
this was an interesting period where, uh, I guess, just because you, you had fans of material becoming publishers, they would start putting stuff like this out. Uh, I remember in '89. Now Disney, you know, hardly ever passes up an opportunity to make a buck. Really? Uh, yeah, I know it's shocking. <laughs> But I remember them releasing, because it was, I think it, that year it was Mickey Mouse's 60th? Was it his 50th or 60th birthday that year? It was it was one of the anniversary years, because my gym teacher at, in junior high loved Mickey Mouse. And he was sitting there giving us a history lesson on Steamboat Willie while we were playing dodgeball. Uh, which seemed counterintuitive, but you know, why are you distracting me? I'm slow enough as it is. <laughs> please, please, for the love of God, stop! And uh, I remember some company put out like the Mickey Mouse comic strips from the 30s and 40s uh, that were um, a little offensive in areas, actually. Not not as sensitive as 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 would the mouse would be today. So. Uh, and on one hand, it's kind of cool, but on the other hand, I wonder if these books are like outrageous—they're either outrageously expensive or they're just sitting there not being bought because no one knows how to price them. Because there's not a—I don't know if there's a big market for them at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So, are we ready to move on to the next book? Uh, yeah, who's got that one? That would be me. Oh, are you sure it's not Paul? You, you yeah. didn't. Oh, oh, that's feeling <laughs> Bill. Doing his Bill impersonation. So we're uh, give me we're some warm jump. Mountain Dew, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any other kind, really? Uh, we are going to jump uh, about four years into the future with Valor or Valor, as I used to call it, because it sounded more alien. Number one from DC Comics. This is an Eclipse of the Darkness Within Aftermath issue. For those not familiar, Eclipse of the Darkness Within was the DC crossover from 1992. It crossed over into their annuals. Uh, and some guy named Joe Quesada drew a lot of Superman covers that year. It was really kind of weird. But you have the title character, Valor, on the cover flying through space. And he is a precursor to the 90s. Uh, I know it's 1992, but we're not at peak 90s yet because he's got shoulder pads and pouches. Uh, <laughs> only two pouches, though. And only. On, and on the <laughs> moon behind him, you see the face of Eclipso, and there's like the moon is even eclipsed a little bit. And uh, he looks really angry. Uh, so what do you guys think of this one? Now I'm going to be controversial. I kind of like the belt. Okay. No, he's, not, he's not exactly a Superman, but it's 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 in that category. I, I like the belt actually, and it's a pretty wacky cape. I mean, in 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 the good way. Well, the giant shoulders I mean, are false. part of the yeah. cape, are they not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm more enamored with the background ish, uh, image of Eclipso and just the star field and all of that than I am with the image of Valor. Uh, I I don't I don't know you know. The, you know the model quite as well as I guess I could, but that doesn't look like Monel's face to me. Uh, and I, I, I'm not a fan of the giant shoulders on the on the cape. <laughs> the the belt doesn't bother me. I'm gonna I'm gonna side with you on that, Alan, and say, you know, it, it's not overly loaded. If it had four pouches that you could see, 
and then you would just assume that there were pouches in the back too, and that, yeah. then it, then it would be overdone. But just have one pouch at each side, which is also located in a place where, if you you know, assuming you have something in there that you're going to need to get a hold of quickly, they're located in a spot where you could quickly reach and grab something. Uh, at least they seem to have a utility to them. Uh, Unlike, you know, utility belts and that are drawn with, you know, 60 different pouches and you need something quickly, but you got to figure out, is, is it the 40th one from the right or the 41st one, you know? I am, I don't hate the cover, but I'm not in love with it either. Uh, I, I'm amused by the first explosive issue, uh, you know, bit of copy on it. Which uh, it, it is a little explosive towards the end, so at least it doesn't lie to you. <laughs> I the bicycle gloves—that's what I'm gonna call. Oh yeah, them. I didn't even didn't yeah, even take note of that. Yep, I have to say, yep. yep. It, it's just this is this isn't a terrible design, but I'm only saying that because I know it could have been worse. But this is indicative of trying to take kind of the classic Monel costume. Uh, which, you know, was like inverted Superman colors and making it modern for 1992. You know? I mean, there's a reason why those primary color costumes work. I mean, so, I mean, that, that aspect of it. Yeah. So, uh, you color know, you've scheme's got, great. and you've got the yellow and the red and the blue. So, yeah. So, you know, it does evoke Superman, his short cropped hair. Uh, again, if this was like, a year or two in the future, he'd have long, kind of grunge hair. I'd be willing to bet. A mullet, perhaps. Uh, yeah. I think it would be a mullet. I, you I can say it, Mike. I, I can't say the word mullet. A mullet. Me and my uh, me and my therapist have worked through that. So, but I, I just think that it's a striking first issue cover. But it, it, I will admit that it is extremely dated as well. So when we that's open, fair, yeah. So we open up to the story, which is called End Game. Uh, at no point does anybody snap their fingers uh, during the course of this, though he's getting ripped apart on the first page. And it's written by Robert Lauren Fleming, M.D. Bright, sometimes known as Doc Bright, as uh, the penciler. Get that M.D. Doc, get it. <laughs> Suddenly, I just picture Rick Moranis' dark helmet, <laughs> looking <laughs> looking at the audience, going, "Everybody got that." Um, you have Al Gordon as inker, uh, Bob Panaha as letterer, Eric Cashelhofer. That's what I'm going to go with for colorist. Uh, Eddie Berganza, assistant editor, and Michael Yuri, editor. We open on Valor. Uh, aka Largand being examined by a either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. They never really say because she does, and she doesn't subscribe prescribe anything to him, so I really can't tell the difference. But she's giving him a Rorschach test, and he is not taking it seriously. We get a flashback of the events of Eclipso: The Darkness Within when Eclipso took over uh, Largand's body. And his hair went from being normal kind of Superman hair to being all spiky. Uh, and he fought Superman, who won. And he, Largand, helped basically bring about the defeat of Eclipso. But he is not taking 
the events of being taken over by Eclipso, nor is he taking the death of his father very well. So the psychiatrist tries to get into that, and he refuses. We learn that Largan's father was a scientist who was away a lot, but they played this particular game, uh, which was called Paragon. And the last time they were going to play it, he won, and his father had to leave, and he Monel kind of felt bad about that, and he promised that if he ever played his father again, that he would let him win. But unfortunately, that was the mission that took his father to Earth when Daxim was acting as observer to the Alien Alliance, which was trying to basically get rid of all the superheroes on the planet. And Largan's father sacrificed himself to get word back to Daxum that they need to support Earth and not the Alien Alliance. So there's a lot of guilt over that. Uh, Ma, Ma, I keep wanting to call him Monel, and it's bugging me. Largan leaves, uh, leaves the room, and the doctor goes to her boss, who is the red-headed Australian Lex Luthor, uh, who is uh, putting together a big spaceship, and he is trying to help Largan and by help, uh, figure out a way to control him. So in his quarters, Largand realizes that he's still in contact with Eclipso, so he flies to the South American jungle where Eclipso had a headquarters and finds that Eclipso is still very much active and has a bunch of locals under his control. Largan and they are trying to basically destroy the moon so that it crashes into the Earth and basically creates an environment where Eclipso can reign supreme. He starts killing people, straight up killing people, and at, by the end of the battle, he Eclipso realizes that Largand has been basically making it so that... the Distracting, that is. I don't know why I'm stumbling over my words. I apologize, everybody. He's basically distracting Eclipso until the sun comes up, which takes away Eclipso's power. Largan trashes the place and basically has a kind of little bit of a mental breakdown over the feelings of guilt he has for his father's death. And on the final page, Lex Luthor enlists Supergirl to get Largan to come back, and she will get him there one way or the other. She's going to get you, get you, get you, get you. One I, way. He can't say that's not exactly where my mind went. Maybe next week. <laughs> but uh who wants to go first on this one yeah from from at, at in 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 this era uh i was starting to wind down my collecting at this point not starting new series cutting off old ones when they just got to big round numbers so new number ones from this era which not on my radar at all no interest so a lot of new books from the 90s and mid 2000s especially at the big two are just big black holes for me. Now, I do have to say that if you're going to sit out of modern comics for an entire decade, let's be honest, 92 to about 2004, that turned out to be a really good time to sit out of comics. But uh -huh. that, that being said, I did miss uh, the Valors and, and, and some, of these other, uh, some of these other books. Uh, but you know, it's it's fine. I'm not in love with Supergirl's hair at the end. That's a lot of hair. Yes, that is. Oh, that's a also lot of hair. a key of the '90s. Yes, yes, true. Big hair. I'm also yep. not crazy about Luthor's face above the big hair. Yes, that 
that that last page. I think I don't know if that was a deadline took, issue or something, but that last page. Uh, last page looks like it was rushed in the inking. Yeah, that could be. And what's in the, the picture? Where they show him from afar. Uh, he looks like uh, I don't know which one, Cain or Abel. From is it from House of mm. Secrets? Right. That would have been Abel. Because are you talking the skinny one or the fat one? I don't recall. Okay. I just I'm, I'm looking at the hair more than anything else in that image. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on that last page. I think the art is it, it takes a, a, a demonstrative step down there, and I think it is the inking, and I think they might have been running into deadline issues uh, as they were getting close to completion, because there's really no other explanation I can think of for that. Or yeah, I, I, or the I, artist I just got tired. <laughs> <laughs> Finish this up. I thought the uh, psychology scenes, I thought those were pretty good. I like that, that stuff uh, with him. I uh, thought it got a little over the top and, and melodramatic for me with the father stuff, but you know that's an important area to address, and you might end up being a little emotional about that. And uh, I, th- I thought, actually thought this was a pretty decent way of transitioning from the Eclipso event into the ongoing series. I, th- I, th- I thought in terms of serving that function, I think it did that reasonably well. What do you think about its ability to pull in somebody who really had no familiarity with the Eclipso series or the Eclipso storyline? I think that would be a tough sell. This this book is interesting. The reason why I chose it is I'm trying to read comics in my collection that I have not read yet. And I bought the Valor series as part of like buying a bunch of Legion books from this time period. And so you had kind of a perfect storm with this title where the Legion was celebrating a little bit of popularity because this is also around the time period that they launched the second Legion title, Legionnaires. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you had like a a Timberwolf miniseries and it seemed like the Legion was kind of gaining back some of the popularity it lost in the late 80s because in the early 80s, the Legion was one of the hot properties. Uh, it was up there with like X-Men and New Teen Titans and, and that kind of thing. So this was not only kind of a let's explore a character related to that world, uh, but also let's have this be one of the spinoff books after a event that was kind of a weird event in that it took place in the annuals. And annuals were not, and this is still an era where new strand distri- distribution was a thing. So it was, you know, I went to the comic shop, but I bought a lot of my books still off the stand at this point. And so I didn't get a lot of the annuals because one, they were more expensive. Ah, right. And two, you just, you just couldn't find them. So this is one of those books that I think if you were, if you had read Eclipso and really liked Largand in that series and wanted to see his further adventures, it would be an easy sell. I think if you hadn't read any of that, they do a good job of explaining what happened. But I don't know if this is a good enough hook to like keep, get you to want to read issue two, which is why I think they ended on Supergirl's chest. <laughs> <laughs> Hoping for more of the same in issue two? Yeah. I mean, it's not bad. I mean, the, the writing, like, 
like Alan said, it, it, it has a, a psychological hook to it. It's not just him going down and beating a bunch of people up. Uh, I was surprised at the level of violence. Because uh, these, these people aren't Eclipso. They're people Eclipso has taken over. So, so he is essentially breaking people and killing people that once Eclipso leaves, they're dead. And they ain't coming back. So it's it, I don't know if they were trying to show that that he's different from other heroes or that he's just uh, on a dark on a dark streak. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of like I don't really know how to feel about that. Um, but it's I interesting. Think, I, I, I think Mike, I think at one point he does say that these are some sort of special eclipsos okay that there is not someone in them. Okay. I guess I missed that. But that was about I, that is on the same page where he demonstrates his retractable cape. <laughs> so if you are so stunned by that as I was, it could have easily been missed. I, I, I was I was completely stunned by the retractable cape. <laughs> more more heroes need that. I'm just saying. Yeah, I just, thought just, the logistics just watch of the, the Incredibles. <laughs> what, what what I want is a oh, cape. What I want is one of those capes that's like in in certain in certain restrooms where you pull the 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 paper towel down and another one pops down right after it. I'm, I'm kind of wondering if that that would happen here as well. Like if you pulled off his cape, if another cape. Another one. Do you want one of those really old fashioned ones where like all it is is one towel oh, on a around. loop? It just keeps rolling around. And and they, and it and is it's designed to create the false impression that when it goes through it's being cleaned somehow, but yeah. really nothing is happening at all. Uh, art wise, it's interesting. MD Bright has a very distinctive art style. Like you can open a book and you know it's MD Bright. I do not know if he is served particularly well by Al Gordon as an inker. No, I don't think he is, honestly. But I also think, and and it may be more the inking than the penciling, it it almost serves as a contrast to the last book that we covered because it looks to me like this book is inked with an eye towards I'm going to leave a lot of white space to put color in. Mm-hmm. I'll agree with mm-hmm. that. I get that, yeah. And and it, it's it's like dependent on the coloring. If this was in black and white, the the images would be way too stark. Uh, but the color and and you know this is the '90s coloring, so everything is you know really bright uh, until until we got later, and then everything became really really dark. <laughs> but but at this point, the colors are you know they're all like fluorescent uh, or neon, and it, it's just it's a little much to be honest with you. I'll, I'll go with that too. I, I think my problem with with MD Bright, and, and when I say problem, that is not to say that I don't like his style, is that a lot of his male characters t- tend to look, unless there's something very different of them, like they have long red hair and a red beard, uh, they, they tend to look similar. But at the same time, I love his issues of Green Lantern. Uh, I enjoyed the Iron Man issues of his that I've read. Now, that uh, and, was during the Armor Wars, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And he did a series with Christopher Priest that was brought back recently called Quantum and Woody uh, in the 90s for Acclaim Comics that I thought was hysterical. It was a really good uh, kind of funny series that had a good hook to it. So I, I am I am predisposed to like it, 
I do not know if this is the best example of his artwork. Uh, but, you know, you have Robert Florin, Robert Lauren Fleming. Good Lord, man. Just just call yourself Robert Fleming and get it over with. <laughs> <laughs> Bob. Let's go with Bob. Uh, he writes kind of in that Keith Giffen mold, where it's a little psychological. There's a little humor to it. There's a little bit of an edge to it. And from what I have heard of this title, and I'll be interested when I actually read the, re- the other issues, from what I've heard of this title, it kind of jumps all over the place in terms of the, uh, the reason to be for it. And then at the end, it just serves to kind of wrap up this era of the Legion because it's part of a giant crossover with the other Legion books uh, right before Zero Hour. So uh, it's just I, I chose it because I've always wanted to read it, and I'm not sure that I chose wisely. And now you have read it. Yes, so I can say that. I mean, I could have said it before, but now I'm not lying. <laughs> it's like that old uh, that old comedian uh, comedian named Fred Stoller. I remember seeing from the late 80s and early 90s. It's like, my mom wants me to graduate college so I can say I'm a college graduate. I can't say that now. I'm a college wagawa. I'm a college wagawa. Damn, four credits short. Wow, the college humor went nowhere with Alan. Very good. <laughs> I disapprove of making fun of that institution. <laughs> that's That's my job. <laughs> Yeah, I actually found this story a little... Uh, I, I kind of got lost a little bit. So, you know, I can't say I read it all that closely. As we discussed, I had some time constraints. Uh, but I, I wasn't sure exactly where we were going, and I really don't have familiarity with the Eclipso storyline before this. So as we were discussing, you know, it's not really the most accessible issue for me. And I think that kind of speaks to it. Yeah, this was supposed that. to be something that would make you want to pick it up because it's a number one and you pick it up and you're like, wow, I had to read a whole other thing to get what's going on here. <laughs> yeah, you, See, you want number one issues to kind of pull you in. And if, if it's building on a form of prior storyline, you want it to be written in a way where it's engaging and kind of lets you know how it's building on or what it's building on. If that's... that's uh... That's an, in, an interesting observation, Paul, because I kind of like the Darkness Within um, miniseries. Um, and so coming to this, you know, I mean, collecting issues aside, the Eclipso uh, Darkness Within is, is a pretty good miniseries. And so I I actually did bring that knowledge. I mean, to me, that's, that, that's as good as Eclipso has ever been. And so I brought sort of that positive vibe into this story and, and again to me it, it it I saw it as a bridge from something I was familiar with into something I wasn't but obviously if you're not familiar with it to begin with that bridge doesn't help you very much well the, the bridge is on is 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 firmly anchored on where it's going but it doesn't give you a lot on where it's coming from mm-hmm. right right yeah that's that that's something that I'm bringing uh, to to my reading of it. So do we want to do grades? Sure. Uh, 
It's your book, I'll so we, you go first. I'll go first. Uh, I will give uh, the cover a B minus. Uh, mostly that's design, I will say. Uh, I will give the interior art B minus as well, because I know that MD Bright is capable of more, but the inking, I think, takes it down a notch. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go across the board here and B minus for the story. I enjoyed it, but it's not it didn't do one of the things an issue one should make you want to do. I didn't immediately want to read issue two. Mm-hmm. I want to eventually read issue two. <laughs> so it's not like I never want to read issue two, but it's not like I got up from this going, man, I gotta I gotta tear through the rest of this series. So yeah, That's... B minus overall for me. I, I I was actually B minus as overall as well, so I'll say that uh, you know one thing I did not mention on the cover, I'm not sure I like the eclipsed moon, eclipso as the man in the moon or whatever that that and the symbolism there, but again there's so much other stuff going on in that cover. I thought that may have been a bit a uh, bit much, but again don't really have any problems. With the cover, or with the art, or with the story, it's just, you know, there-ish. I'm going to differ from you on that, because I kind of like Eclipso on the Moon. It's kind of my favorite thing on the cover. You <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, so, are so wrong on this book. So I, wrong. How you can know, you... I firmly believe there is no right or wrong, unless it's my <laughs> thing, in which case it's just right. That's true. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, I think don't get the... me started on how to load the dishwasher. <laughs> only two ways: my way and every other wrong way. You know, I think there's two ways to load the dishwasher. You do it, or it doesn't get done. <laughs> <laughs> or at least that's how my kids think, and because I load the dishwasher, I am the one who loads it all the time. But that's besides the point. Um, I. I don't mind the design of the cover. I'm not fond of the, again, the, the the shoulder cape thing. I don't even know what you call them when they're, they're built up like that. It's very distracting. It, it draws your eye to it, and it just doesn't seem to have any functionality or reason to exist that way. Uh, other than it's the 90s. Go with it. But I like I said, I, I'm kind of my, you know, other than that, I'm kind of more attracted to the artwork around him than I am to the artwork on him. So I don't feel it really does its best job of being a poster image first issue cover. I don't mind first issue covers being poster images. In fact, I, I think it's almost mandatory in most cases. Uh, but I feel like this one just kind of. It, it's it's underwhelming in some ways, so I'm going to give it a B minus. Uh, whereas I, you know, I feel like a first issue almost needs to be higher than that. Uh, the interior art, I do tend to think you're right that it's more the inking than the penciling, because it's it's a lot of the fine work that seems to be lacking, and it's a lot of the background detail work which either is being erased a la Vince Coletta. Or it's just not being put in there the way it should be by the embellisher. Uh, it, it, you know, the line work is very, very 90s, 
you know, a lot, you know, a lot of what you'd see in, in a lot of the books of this era when they were just pumping things out. And I just think it could be a lot better. On the other hand, I do like some of the images. So um, I go back and forth, but ultimately I'm going to come up with a C-plus on the interior art. Uh, and the story kind of lost me, and I felt like it was difficult to follow in, unless I had a familiarity that I didn't have. So I'm going to give the story a C-, and overall I'll give the book a C+. I think that's a very fair assessment. You know, but Mike, first issue we give you an A. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be one of the few I've ever gotten in my lifetime. So that's <laughs> nice. Uh, no, it's just I, I, I just I'm just going to go back for a second. You know, first issues are hard. I think a, I think a professor said that more than <laughs> once. Uh, and and it's funny because first issues in the '90s are especially hard. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it, you know, the 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 in at this time period, it was still the bubble was still growing on the industry. So, you know, like you had a lot of number ones. I remember Wizard actually tracked every month all the new number ones that came out in a given month. And if you if you like go through those issue by issue, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then there's an explosion. Uh, not literally on the page, though that would have been funny. Uh, <laughs> but by '93, it had reached its saturation point, and then, like you know, just most economic downturns, it wasn't apparent right away. It took a couple years for it to really set in that oh my god, the ship, the ship is not only taking on, on water, we're halfway under, and there's no way out. So, so number ones of this time period. I think it tended to coast on the fact that people would buy number ones instead of being something that you really want to grab a new reader with. Uh, uh, thoughts on that? I think you're absolutely on the money. I think it, it's, uh, I hate to say on the money because it's almost like a cliche and a, you know, like a cheap joke on what they're doing. Uh, but I think it was an effort to grab onto the speculator market where people were picking up multiple copies of number one issues so that just by slapping a number one on the cover, you could get away with putting out an inferior product and still getting high sales. But at least it wasn't a complete waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It created an episode where I got to talk to two of two of the people who I enjoy talking to. So how 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 wrong could it go? It's perfect. And retractable cape. Yeah, that, oh, that's that is probably the best thing in the issue. <laughs> that's the highlight. <laughs> I don't know, man. I I, I think uh, I think retractable capes are going to be the, the 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 next thing. They're going to be the next button shoes. <laughs> uh maybe we go out on that yeah <laughs> it's like a drop the mic moment as almost you, literally as you, as you hear me fall to the ground we actually i don't know if you guys if i told i remember telling shag this uh the american sci-fi classics track which is the main track i hang out with at, at dragon con we realized that we had so many Michaels involved in the track that we actually had an all Michael panel last year. So, but there was like seven of us, seven of us on the stage, and they do uh, uh, 
this track does something called a roller panel, where somebody creates a 20-sided die, a giant 20-sided die, and they put different subjects all over it. Usually, there's a theme to it. So, you know, like movies of 19, you know, like that are celebrating an anniversary that year. And they do a 20-sided die, and an audience member rolls the die, and whatever it comes up on, the panel talks about for three minutes. Uh, so we had a Michael 20-sided die, where we talked like, about <laughs> Michael Knight, uh, you know, Michael McKeon. <laughs> it's, it's, it's only something that could happen at Dragon Con. <laughs> of, course, um, of course, when, uh, when I got into listening to, to podcasts... I had to keep my Michael Bailey and my Michael Bradley straight. And, of course, at some point, I guess, there was a two-men-enter-one-men-leave situation. I'm not sure uh, no, what I th- I think to, uh, to, to defeat him, but okay. I think one of us And then Mike Staley up. came along. And, man. And, and and the problem with Bradley was, okay, they're both, they both begin with B, they both end with Lee, <laughs> and they both talk about Batman and Superman. So... <sighs> I remember him being on one of your shows, and it was basically like it came down to the fact that he had a show where it featured both of them. So <laughs> that's right, that's right. Which, which I felt like was a challenge. Like I feel like I'm being goaded into do some, doing something here. Ah, uh, well, that was a lot of fun, gentlemen. It was, and I enjoyed yes. it. I'm glad we managed to find some time to get together because it's been too long. Uh, yeah, and. It's, it's, and and my my life is really complex right now. So just like I I I've been looking at my Facebook Messenger. I looked at one yesterday because uh, I wanted to ask Luke uh, Jack and Eddie a question, and I realized he asked me a question in September of last year that I somehow missed. Okay. So after so after begging his forgiveness, <laughs> I I answered the question and then asked him what I had to ask. Him, so. <laughs> and uh, and Mr. Spataro, we're probably five or eh, may, maybe by the end of the year we'll need to talk about Quarterbin 150. Uh, I'm there. You just tell me appearance. when. <laughs> Every 50 issues or so, I you know I'm, I'm are needed. You, uh, are you going to do another uh, like a? Are you going to talk about 150 comics on this? Oh, right, uh, please, never again. <laughs> never. <laughs> I'm getting too old for this podcasting. Can I tell you though that I listen to that at least every six months? <laughs> it is a it is eminently re-listenable that the, those six because because the subject yeah. changes so often that it, you just never you you're never in a position where you never know bored. what's coming next. Yeah, that, that, that is was, true. That, that, that was funny. Got me a chance to uh, talk to a whole bunch of podcasts that I hadn't talked to before. We're gonna oh, have to start fun. thinking about what, what I'm gonna, or I'm gonna have to start thinking about what I'm gonna do for episode 400 of Back to the Bins. Ooh. Well, I, I, maybe you have to bring it back all of the hosts. <laughs> I would like to do that, but the problem is I don't think we could ever get Alec Berg to come back. Yeah, but do we really want to? Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, it oh, would be cool okay. to have everybody who was ever a regular ah, host. Ah, okay. I see where you're saying. Yeah. Which would be yeah. Scott, Alec, you, me, Bill, and that's about it. Yeah. Those are the only people who were ever truly regular hosts. So there's only five of us. <laughs> you know, And we've had episodes with the four of us before. Right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So it would be nice to have one with the five. I, I know Scott has said he's he has on occasion attempted to reach out to him, but has gotten no response. Yeah, he was a young kid too when they first started. Uh... Yeah, I think he was a teenager. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. It's amazing. But now yeah, he's got to be in his twenties by now. Which means he may not give a shit about any of this stuff anymore. Yeah, he might. He might. He might be like, like, like going to college, and <laughs> he might. He might be beyond college, trying to have like a life and career as know, opposed to us. Yeah, because he's probably like twenty six years old now. Well, he, that was he, ten, it was like almost ten years ago. Well, I'm on the show since two thousand twelve, so that's seven years. Scott had me on the first episode at the end of 2009. So it is 10 years. So he, yeah, he started doing that like 10 years ago. So if that kid was 16, he's 26 now. He may have discovered girls by now. Oh, cooties. Or men. Well, whatever, you know. I... I, just, just, just to just to leave leave off on something that we were talking about, uh, Monty Python being ahead of its time uh, with political correctness. If you've seen the Life of Brian, and I don't remember the exact context of it, but there's the group uh, that's meeting, and one of the people is talking about like a rule that they want to set up, and, and every time he says he, the guy next to him has to has to chime in or she. <laughs> and I just, I just think it's hysterical. Well, gentlemen, I'm gonna go finish cleaning the kitchen and then uh, go to bed. Uh, you do that. Say hello to Rachel for us. Mm-hmm. I will. I, I would say hello to the dogs, but they've already said hello already. They have, and uh, but you can tell them. The you can just tell them we said hello back. All righty, gentlemen. I will talk to you all later. We'll all right. Thanks for day. coming on, Mike. Yep. See you guys. And thanks, Alan. I'll talk oh, to you both good soon. To chat with you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. <laughs> uh, this is all comedy gold. <laughs>